in life, some of the events that become etched in our memory are things that are emotional. Emotional memories are the ones that you can usually remember the exact place you were when something happened, usually very vividly, you know, uh, what was taking place, or perhaps you can recount the details of a, of a given scenario. I still remember receiving a phone call from one of my best friends, and I could tell immediately, because I knew him well, uh, that all was not well just by the tone of his voice. It's amazing. You don't have to go to class to figure that out. You can just immediately hear in the tonal inflection that something is terribly wrong. And he asked, do you have a minute? I'm not sure if he asked if I was sitting down, but I knew that the news was not going to be good. And he was letting me know that one of our friends and one of our mentors, a beloved pastor uh, who had been involved in both of our lives, had defected. He'd walked away from the faith. He'd been exposed that, in fact, he was living a double life. And all of the sermons that we'd heard, all of the counseling and the discipleship, all of the modeling was actually done in pretense. That was a show. Uh, There was no saving faith. There was no love for Christ. There was no humility before his word. There was no brokenness. There was a lot of spiritual activity. There was a lot of saying and doing things that appeared right on the outside. And although I'm still in midlife, it's, it's not the only friend, it's not even the only pastor I've had by which that has happened. Just a few years ago, a man who had ministered to us, we'd been in his home for Bible studies, we'd shared fellowship around the table with their many children, I think it was eight at that time and counting, We'd shared meals, I'd been discipled and poured into, and then come to find out he's walking away from all of it. And so when we encounter hypocrisy like that, not just hypocrisy in the world, but hypocrisy in the church, it's immediately unsettling. It's immediately devastating. It raises a lot of questions in the heart of a believer. Begin to ask ourselves, well, if I can't trust so-and-so, then who can I really trust? Or perhaps, what does their failure mean for me? If this person can't persevere in the faith, if they can't seem to handle temptation, then what hope do I have that I'm not going to end up in the same spot? Sometimes we ask, how could I be duped? How could I not have seen this coming? How could I have not seen the indicators and and the leading factors that should have at least caused me to catch something? I I feel like I should have been able to discern this. We expect hypocrisy from politicians. We expect hypocrisy from social elites. We expect hypocrisy in the world. But what about hypocrisy in the church? See, hypocrisy is something that we are never to become numb to. It's not something that we're ever to become indifferent toward. Either around us or the hypocrisy that still lurks within. And the reason is because God is not neutral toward hypocrisy. 
He's not indifferent to hypocrisy. In fact, in in terms of things that God specifically hates and calls out in Scripture that he disdains, hypocrisy is pretty much at the top of the list. Said another way, there's not many things you can carry out in your life that would be more offensive to the God who made you than hypocrisy. I want you to take your Bibles and I invite you to turn with me this morning to John chapter 18. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Every one of the Gospel writers includes the account of the crucifixion of Christ and the passion narrative that led up to that. John includes this paragraph really to demonstrate the innocence of the Lord Jesus. It's to demonstrate that he was brought before a magistrate. He was essentially tried. And through the trial, he was exonerated as being absolutely, utterly without fault in everything that he was being accused of. Pilate and Jesus get into a theological discussion here about truth, which is not included in any of of the other gospel accounts. I came to this passage originally because Jesus begins to talk about having a kingdom that is not of this world in verse 36. I thought, boy, what a great reminder. Let's spend some time talking about this kingdom that is not of this world. And to fix our gaze on that in the midst of the world, we find ourselves, and yet I couldn't get over verse 28. And so we're going to get there, but this morning we're going to camp out on John chapter 18, verse 28. John writes, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, This man were not doing evil. We would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. John's purpose in including this section of Scripture is not really to deal with hypocrisy. That's not his main burden. But in the process of demonstrating the complete innocence of Jesus Christ, there is no way to condemn an innocent man without deception. There's no way to condemn an innocent man without tricks up your sleeve. And in fact, I would say there's no way to condemn an innocent man without somehow justifying so that you actually become convinced that you in fact are doing what is right. And so hypocrisy is a thread that runs through this passage. I want to help us this morning unpack this issue and lay it out there. It'll be a little bit of a different sermon, if you will. It's going to be a topical exposition. So normally we take a paragraph and we just drive at the main point of the author. Today we're going to stop at this first verse and we're going to explore the issue of hypocrisy. We're going to unmask it. First, we're going to look at what is hypocrisy, why is it so alluring, and how do we deal with it? What is hypocrisy, why is it so alluring, and how do we deal with it? You know, sometimes you'll hear it said, even casually, well, everyone is a hypocrite. In fact, one book written by a pastor was opened up, and in the beginning, he referred to himself as a professional hypocrite. Now, by that, of course, I don't think he meant to say he was living a double life, but he was saying, you know, I get up and I preach things better than I live, and so therefore that makes me a hypocrite. You know, that as a Christian, when you speak the truth and you hold up God's standard and then you fall short of it, you're automatically a hypocrite. That language is careless. I think we need to be more careful with how we use the expression. In fact, Buck Parsons writes, that on the surface, it certainly seems appropriate for all Christians to admit that we are hypocrites. However, if we really understand what it means to be a hypocrite, then we should do everything necessary to be, avoid being labeled as such. Furthermore, we must not think for a minute that just because you announce that you're a hypocrite, that you're not a hypocrite. Just because you say it suddenly means that you're not. Well, we must always strive to be genuine and honest people of God in all that we do, admitting our faults and confessing our sins to the church and the world. We also must always strive to be people who are known by the church and the world to be striving after true holiness. So he begins to define then what is Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not simply the presence of sin in your life. In fact, if you were to look around in the room right now, you could look across, you could look to your left and your right, you could look up here in the pulpit, I could look back at you. Every one of us in the room right now is a sinner. And every day you wake up and you commit sin. You miss the mark. You transgress. You break God's law. You incur uh, iniquity as the result of sin. And so hypocrisy certainly can't mean the presence of sin or failure in the Christian life. It's something completely different. In fact, the word hypocrisy itself was the idea of, of playing a stage role as in acting. 
So this was an acting concept. In other words, it's creating a public impression that is at odds with your real purposes or your real motivations. It's the idea of of saving face. It's pretense, an outward show. That means that it could be everything from uh, secretly being angry or resentful in your heart and then pretending that everything is nice on the outside to masking your true intentions or hiding your sin. As believers, this is to be far from us. Bishop Ryle writes, Whatever we are in our religion, let us resolve never to wear a cloak, and let us by all means be honest and real. Whatever we are in our religion, let us resolve never to wear a cloak. Let us by all means be honest and real. And so it begins to get to the core of what hypocrisy really is. It is not the absence of sin. Being a sinner does not make you a hypocrite. Rather, it's walking in the light. John would write in his first epistle, 1 John 1.7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As you begin to see there, the the fellowship that we have with the Lord is not ultimately based upon a life of perfection that none of us could live. It's, It's from walking in the light, John says. Walking in the light as he is in the light. That means there's nothing hidden inside that I'm masking, either from God or from others. And so, as believers, we never want to say casually that Christians are hypocrites simply because we fall short of God's standard. Rather, we're to renounce the hidden things of shame and take the mask off and say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Warts and all. Hypocrisy is is walking in the light. And in fact, if you were to think about Hypocrisy, broadly speaking then, even in in the world, it's not someone who is merely practicing sin either, or wickedness. The Bible says that the sin of some men is obvious. Some forms of evil are done out in the open. People who glory in their shame, people who revel in their sin, uh, they're hardened, their rebellion is open, and they just don't care. In other words, they're happy to let you know about their iniquity. You ever done any programming? There's a WYSIWYG editor, and a WYSIWYG editor is what you see is what you get. You kind of put all those initials there. So when you're trying to develop something on a website and you type in the words uh, and they're big, then they're going to be big on the web page. Or if they're little, then they're going to be little on the web page. It's called a, a WYSIWYG editor. What you see is what you get. So these are the what you see is what you get kind of people. And if you grew up in a home with other people, you know that some people are the what you see is what you get kind of people. You know exactly where they're at at all times. You know where their thoughts are at. You know where their emotions are at and their desires are at because they just let it all hang out there. So they're people that are kind of mysterious. You know them for a long, long time. You never know what's really driving them or motivating them or what they're thinking because they keep those things cloaked. They keep them hidden. And so hypocrisy is, is this idea of hiddenness. It's the idea of pretense where you are pretending to be righteous. And so as we kind of define what it is, I want to give you the ingredients that are behind it. What is it that drives hypocrisy in the heart of a person? 
There's three ingredients. First, you love your sin and you are unwilling to part with it. You love your sin and you're unwilling to part with it. And we're going to bear this out in several passages as we look at this morning. Second, you love to feel good about yourself, especially in regard to others. You love to feel good about yourself, especially in regard to others. And then finally, you love to be regarded, honored, and esteemed. You love to be regarded, honored, and esteemed. As soon as you begin to take out one of those ingredients, you're not going to walk in hypocrisy. These are the things that make for a hypocrite. An unwillingness to part with your sin because you secretly love it and you want to continue doing it. At the same time, you want to feel good about yourself and justified in your conduct. And then finally, you want to be regarded, honored, and esteemed by others. And so what we see today is that hypocrites, because of these things, will always save face. They will save face at all costs. Let's look at John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. At this time, we're kind of breaking in, but it's festival season in Jerusalem, which meant the city was packed out. Jerusalem was a city that was under Roman occupation. And so that meant that uh, Jews did not really like being oppressed, right? Big surprise there. And so there was the potential for a political uprising, um, a potential that uh, all of a sudden the Jews would gather together and perhaps there'd be some type of uh, political unrest. And so Pilate, uh, who was normally in Caesarea, was there in Jerusalem to provide a presence along with uh, many soldiers that he had. And where they're coming from is the house of Caiaphas and they're coming to the governor's headquarters. So Pilate is the governor. It's early morning. That means it was in the middle of the night. And, and so far, everything that has taken place has been a complete sham. So uh, this so-called trial took place in the middle of the night, uh, which wasn't supposed to happen. They didn't follow the normal procedures. They didn't have uh, true witnesses. They had false witnesses. There's a false conviction made based upon false charges. Everything so far has been done in pretense. And here are these men who are attempting to kill God. And you think about that for just a minute. Jesus has, has never committed a single sin. Every word he's ever spoken has been absolutely true. There's never been a misstep in his conduct that hasn't lined up with a word that he's spoken. His teaching has always been transcendent. He's attested to his claims with miracles and signs and wonders that were indisputable. Even as they tried, they, they realized there's no way that we can refute these things. We have to try and say that maybe he was empowered by Satan in what he was doing because there's no arguing with the evidence and the facts. And yet Jesus, because he was righteous, exposed their deeds. Because they hated righteousness, because they hated the light, they hated Jesus. And so here we see that these men have, have not, no interest in justice. They have no interest in um, actually having a court system that would exonerate the innocent and punish the guilty. 
They have malintent from the beginning, and yet they're going to cover it up. In fact, they'd been plotting to kill Jesus for a long time. It was premeditated, and they'd simply been seeking an opportunity. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, early on in Mark's record of the ministry of Christ, right when Jesus and the Pharisees begin to meet, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Mark chapter 3, verse 6 is early on in the gospel. That's the very beginning of the public ministry of Christ. So here you have, at the outset then, this motivation to destroy Jesus for three years. We read in Luke 11 that the scribes and Pharisees began to press hard and provoke Jesus, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Luke 20 verse 20 says that they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They plotted as to how they might entangle him in his words, Matthew twenty-two fifteen. And so we see them gathering together and plotting over and over and over and over not to discover whether or not he really is the Christ, but rather to get him to be quiet. Say, well, maybe they were just confused. Maybe they didn't really see what was going on in the life of Christ. I mean, sometimes we get confused. Sometimes we misjudge a scenario. But they had the evidence in front of them. Do you remember what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus that night in John chapter 3? It's interesting. He kind of let the cat out of the bag. Nicodemus said that, To Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's saying, look, we all know what's up. We all know that you're from God. We all know that no one just shows up and starts raising the dead and healing the sick and multiplying loaves and fish and disappearing and vanishing unless he's from God. That's not possible. So why did they hate Jesus? See, Jesus wasn't willing to play their games. Jesus was not concerned with with political power and influence. He just told the truth. And he wasn't intimidated. And because he was so compelled by the truth, and because he spoke it, it immediately put him on a path of confrontation. Just listen uh, to some of the words that he would say. Imagine you were in the room and you were a Pharisee, and you normally had the position of influence and prominence among the people. So you're, you're kind of sitting here on the front row, and you're all uh, dressed up in your long robes, and you hear Jesus say this while you're sitting there. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense, for pretend... Just for pretends, they make long prayers. Jesus would warn his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Leaven was the corrupting influence. So the key issue with the Pharisees was hypocrisy. Now as we work through this, what's so interesting is that Jesus dealt with hypocrites very different than he dealt with sinners. 
Right? And when you go back to those ingredients, to love sin is one thing, but to love sin and to also love to appear righteous and to love your reputation is another. So what are the attributes of a hypocrite as we unpack this thing? Well, hypocrites, as we read through those passages, love a focus on the externals. So they assess life through behavior, through circumstances. Uh, If you were to think of what brought a Pharisee comfort when the conscience of their sin began to ping them, it was, thank God that I'm not like other men, judged on externals. And so we see that within the heart of a hypocrite is the ability to stand for righteousness based upon comparison. There's a preoccupation with how I view and assess my life compared with how I view and assess other people's lives. And I come out in such a way that as I look at them and as I look at me, I feel better about who I am and what I've done in relation to others. Jesus would tell a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, if you remember in Luke 18. What did he say? Well, the Pharisee goes to pray with his arms open and he says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like the sinners. I'm not like a tax collector and a thief. So he was able to stand before God because as he compared himself on the externals, he thought he had something to boast in. Yet, Pharisee is always, always man-centered, preoccupied with what other people think. In fact, enslaved to what people think. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees and he gave them the opportunity to come clean, talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, he said to them in in Matthew 21, I'm going to ask you guys one question that I want you to give me an answer. Just one honest answer, please. He said, if you tell me the answer, then I'm going to tell you the authority by which I do all my miracles. Here's the deal. You ask me a question, I'm going to ask you a question first. You answer my question, then I'll answer your question. Remember what his question was? He said, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from man? And so they had to step back. Right? So we're going we're gonna to convene together. We're gonna have a, can we have two minutes? And we'll come back up and we'll answer the questions. So they gather up. They discuss it among themselves. And here's how they reasoned. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. See, what motivated the lie was the truth was going to be too costly, and then they were fearing their reputation before men. They were unwilling to let go of their standing of of being in a position of power influence and being perceived as righteous. This is why, of course, Jesus would speak on the Sermon of the Mount that If you're going to enter in the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness is actually to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, to be a hypocrite means that you have to be preoccupied with things that are less important, secondary matters. The way Jesus would describe it in Matthew 29 was uh, that they would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
That sounds like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It is. That's the concept. Concept is that, that you're preoccupied with things that are insignificant spiritually while missing the bigger picture. I find very often in pastoral counseling this comes up. Someone has an issue in their life, perhaps a, a vice or a sin that they long to be free from. Perhaps something that has plagued them for a long time and they come and they sit down and they say, I, I have an issue in my life and I must deal with this particular besetting sin. And what do we begin to talk about? Well, as important as that besetting sin is, that's not really the problem. That's just the fruit of a deeper worship problem in your heart. That the, the little concern that you probably have that's plaguing your conscience is more than likely misplaced. That's what we often do. We begin to focus on the fruit and be concerned about that. In fact, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus would call out as hypocrites publicly in front of everyone. So you just say, woe to you pretenders. Woe to you pretenders. Why? Well, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You'd go on in Matthew 23 and say, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, for you're like a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, through all of this, what you see is there's a preoccupation with how I appear before others. And what matters most to the hypocrite is not being godly, but looking godly. What matters most to a hypocrite is not being godly, but looking godly. And you could even say feeling godly. So, a hypocrite, if they were to look at their life and see the restraint of evil and sin, could be motivated because I don't want to be ashamed by sinning and having my sin come out. I don't want to have to feel the pain of confessing my sin. That would be difficult. I don't want the consequences that are going to come with this type of sin. I don't want to lose my standing and reputation and be looked upon poorly. And so the hypocrite pursues religious activity. The hypocrite pursues that which looks like obedience, and yet it's always motivated out of this self-interest. There's always the fear of what I'm going to lose if I don't keep up appearances. My friends, hypocrisy is so alluring because it's the apex of human pride. I think it's the greatest expression of human pride. Because it says, I, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to be able to look good and feel good about it while I'm doing it. So how do you kill hypocrisy? How do you deal with hypocrisy? If you're a, a total hypocrite, that means you haven't come to Christ in salvation. If that's actually characterizing your life. In other words, you come to church, you read your Bible, you use spiritual language, uh, perhaps you placate your parents, or someone else in your house by speaking spiritual things, but you know inwardly you don't desire Christ. You don't long for righteousness. And the call is to repent, to bring your hypocrisy into the light and find forgiveness 
through Jesus Christ. But if you're in Christ, as much as you hate hypocrisy, what do you find? Sometimes it just creeps back in. Because by nature, we are hypocrites by default. And so how do we deal with hypocrisy? Well, to kill hypocrisy, you must understand that hypocrisy loves the dark and hates the light. Hypocrisy loves the dark and hates the light. It hates the light of God's word. It hates the light of exposure. It hates the light of confession. Hypocrisy hates transparency and accountability. And hypocrisy hates indictment. And so if you are going to kill hypocrisy, you must understand that dealing with hypocrisy means facing these things. And what the flesh wants to do is say, man, is there a way that I can kill hypocrisy and not have to face the pain of the kill? Is there a way that maybe I could just kind of solve my hypocrisy issues on my own and not actually have to really come clean? That's what I would love to do most. I would love to kind of feel good about dealing with my issues and not have the pain of the kill. It doesn't work that way. That's the very bondage that we're talking about. And so to deal with hypocrisy, you must encounter the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So you must become convinced that your own righteousness is worthless muck. When you encounter the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, you recognize that you are in fact guilty as charged. And suddenly you realize, what I want is the righteousness of Christ, and that is enough for me, and now I don't need any more my own sense of righteousness. First way that you deal with this is to live a confessional life. If you want to kill hypocrisy, you need to learn to live a confessional life. David's words are so precious in Psalm 51 when he came clean before the Lord. He cried out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Lord, you wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, when David was willing to deal with his hypocrisy, he came to the Lord and he said, You know what, Lord, you're just. I'm going to affirm your testimony. I'm going, to, I'm going to take the guilt and I'm going to self-indict in the way that I speak. Listen, if you're going to battle hypocrisy, you must cultivate a confessional life where before your God, you have unashamed transparency. I haven't met anyone and I haven't ever seen it in my own life that I'm, that I'm losing the battle with hypocrisy and simultaneously having a rich confessional life before my God. I'm talking about where you take your heart to the scriptures privately before your God and you confess your sin. And you're saying, Lord, I, I don't want blurry lines anymore. I don't want excuses. Equip me of hidden faults. Test my thoughts and my attitudes. Search me, know me, try me. My friends, if you live a confessional life before the Lord, you will be 
putting to death hypocrisy. Second battle strategy is to not take in truth without submission. Don't take in truth without submission. You know, we live in a day and age where you have unprecedented access to God's word. Sermons, podcasts, books, blogs, websites, emails. Come to church. If you miss it, watch it online. But there's a danger when we begin to interact with truth, if we begin to interact with it in a superficial way over and over and over, and we begin to become accustomed to that. And we begin to be able to say, I discover things in God's word, and then like the man in James, I walk away with gunk on my face, and I don't deal with it, and that begins to become comfortable. Ezra 7.10, Ezra said his heart to study the law of God, and to what? And to do it. And then to teach it. He didn't study to be a teacher. He didn't study so that he could impress others with his knowledge. He studied because he wanted to know his God and what he found he wanted to obey. There are those who keep learning and all of their studying is divorced from, from actually submitting to what they learn and so they begin to train their heart in hardness. Paul wrote of these men in 2 Timothy 3 where he said, Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Now how terrifying is this descriptor? Always learning. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. People who come, they have the right study Bible. They have the right devotional routine. They go through the motions of Christianity over and over and over and over. And and yet the learning that they never achieve is, is true humility before God. They never find salvation. They simply find practice of religion. This had happened to the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus would say to them in John chapter 5, you guys search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet what? You refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's saying you guys expend a lot of energy in the study of scripture. The Pharisees expended a lot of energy and they would have said, this is the word of God. It comes from God. It's the way of eternal life. And yet when it came to submission to Christ, they would have None of it. We're going to kill hypocrisy. You live a confessional life. Don't take in truth without submitting to it. Next, you must fear God more than you fear man. We must fear God more than we fear man. My friends, if you're sincere before the Lord, if you fear God, then what you find is that coexisting in your heart cannot remain a fear of man. They're mutually exclusive. As Paul would say in Galatians 1.10, he would say, look, if, if I were still striving to please men, I could not be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? I cannot have both of these fears simultaneously in my heart. I can't nurture a fear of man and then suddenly fear the Lord. And and likewise, the fear of the Lord will protect me from fear of man. Pharisees were always in bondage to this issue. Certainly, they would have at times felt conviction. 
Certainly at times they would have heard the truth and maybe had some desire to do better or to clean up an area of their life. But they never, ever bowed the knee in the area of fear of man. Being to contrast that in the New Testament with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, it's one of the things that we love studying about him. He's concerned over and over and over with a blameless conscience, not before other people, not regarding what they think, but before his Lord. In fact, he would say that he was open with the truth and he would commend himself to everyone's conscience inside of God. He talked about maintaining a pure conscience in 1 Timothy 1. The idea that uh, before the Lord, he had to know, Lord, are my motives right in what I speak and what I do? And if I maintain that as the truth testifies, that's all that I need. How do you maintain a blameless conscience before the truth when you sin? Well, it goes back to that confessional lifestyle. See, a conscience is not maintained by perfect obedience to God's word, but rather genuineness and sincerity before God's word. It says, I affirm his standard is right and just, and I uphold it. And when I fail, rather than making excuses, I confess that he is right. One of the interesting things that happens in the fear of man is that the entire conscience becomes corrupted. One of the scariest verses in the New Testament is 2 Timothy 3.3 that talks about men who are deceived and deceiving. Why is that so terrifying? Because if you were to, to hook up a hypocrite to a lie detector test and say, do you love God? They would say yes. Well, how do you know? Well, I can point to many things that I do for the Lord and evidence is that I'm involved in God's work and... I believe there is a God, and I believe that uh, I've done things for him. It's those who we read about in Matthew 7 that on the day of judgment will be looking at Christ and be saying to him, Lord, Lord. Why are they saying Lord? Because they confessed him as Lord. Because they'd taken Christianity on and said that they were in the faith. They'd at some point had a conversion experience, at some point that they'd begun to identify now as belonging to Jesus. They call him Lord, Lord. And then he says, why should I let you into heaven? And they say, well, look, I've got this resume. Remember, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. He says, I, I don't know you. You never had a personal relationship. You never loved me. Sure, you sat through church, you named my name, you did activities. See, that idea of deceived and, and being deceived is, is the terror that you could actually sit there and believe that you belong to Christ and not belong to Christ. Well, how do you know? You go back to the scriptures. Do you love Jesus? Do you have a desire for righteousness that isn't merely based upon all that you would gain or lose by being righteous, but simply because you love God? Not in perfection, but is that desire well within your soul? My friends, if you are a hypocrite, then the last thing you want to do is bring your sin into the light. And yet it is the first thing that you must do. It doesn't magically evaporate. It doesn't go away simply by willing it to. But in that process of being humbled and exposed before God... And others, if need be, is the place that you will begin to grow. 
Look at how the Pharisees pacified their conscience. Right there in John 18, 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We're going to take Jesus. We're going to drag this innocent man to have him condemned. We're going to get to the governor's headquarters. And, you know, we're just going to stay outside. Why? Well, they believe that maybe the Gentiles have done something unclean. Maybe they've touched a dead body. Maybe I'll go in their house and I'll suddenly be ritually defiled. I don't know what that Gentile does. I'm not going to get defiled. So I'm just going to stand out here so that I can stay clean. So that I can be uncorrupted. So that I can do what? So I can go eat the Passover. I mean, the irony. So I can go celebrate God's magnificent deliverance of his people in the Exodus. I need to go remember my sin and my salvation and, and God's deliverance for me. And so I'm going to keep myself clean. I'm going to just, I'm just going to stand out here. And instantly you see in our hearts how often there's the, I want my sin and yet I want to find a way to just feel okay about it too. My friends, they did not understand that the pollution that they had was not something that would come from the outside, but it was coming from within. To the defiled and the unbelieving, there is nothing that is pure because their minds are polluted. Titus 1.15 And yet there's this desire to take the moral high ground. There's the desire there to appear before others and even in their own minds that they're keeping themselves set apart as unto the Lord in the midst of their deception. Friedrich Martel chronicles in detail the widespread practice of homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church. And in his book, In the Closet of the Vatican, he uh, has no axe to grind with the Catholic Church. In fact, uh, he thinks it's totally fine that priests would celebrate homosexuality. He uh, chronicles it kind of as an insider and a journalist, uh, but he's not out to make any, any moral claims that what's happening is wrong. If you read through the book, there's something that he repeats over and over. He says, if there were only one rule to take away from this book, it is the following. The more homophobic a cardinal is in public, the more likely he is homosexual in private. The more homophobic he is in public, the more likely he's practicing homosexuality in private. And so he goes on and he chronicles through this book that... Uh, those who are the most committed in their practice are those who are also protesting against it publicly the loudest. He said, almost as a rule of thumb, you can guarantee it. Now, what Martel can't seem to connect the dots on is what drives the human heart to do that? He can make the observation. He can see it empirically as he lists out and documents all of the conversations, all of the lunches, all of the times that he met, all of his conversations that are... Uh, well documented as any journalist would. What he can't do is identify why the pattern works that way. What he can't identify is that when the conscience becomes afflicted, grandstanding against something is a way of appeasing the guilt sensation. And so to cry evil in others while practicing it yourself brings relief. My friends, hypocrisy is natural for us. God hates hypocrisy. 
but he is so gracious to the humble. Do you understand that even hypocrites get saved? Even among the Pharisees, there were those who were saved. There were those who came to understand that my righteousness is phony and my sin against God is profound. I've feared man. I've loved iniquity. I've wanted my own standard of righteousness. And yet I see that Christ is God and I'm going to turn to him and come clean. See, by God's grace, he sets free hypocrites. Christians should be the most humble of all people, the most open and transparent. Don't say, hey, you have a question about my life? Go ahead and ask, I'll tell you. What do you want to know? That rather than desiring to appear righteous, we simply want to be righteous. In the righteousness of Christ and then in our inner places. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, even the sin of hypocrisy. My friends, if you are in hiding today, let me encourage you that what you fear the most is the answer to your problem. What you believe cannot be parted with can if you simply bring it into the light. What you believe is too shameful to face is actually keeping you in bondage and slavery to it. And so we affirm with Solomon that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you. We admit up front that you are holy and you are righteous and you are just. Or to think of the irony of those who would hide as if anything was hidden from your gaze. Lord, you see it all anyway. You know it all anyway. And Father, you promise that you will expose what is hidden at some point. Lord, I pray for everyone in the room that we would be able to look to that day, or not with fear, but to say that we will be clothed with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, and that that will be our standing, and that will be our boast, and that will be our plea. Pray that as a church, we would be those who walk in humility. Lord, because that, that puts your love on display. It puts your character on display. Lord, I pray for those who might be hiding or who are fearful. Lord, convince them of how much better it is to walk in the light and to have fellowship with you. You that we can know that fellowship, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.